Believe it or not, we are 22%, give or take a couple hundreds of a percentage point, through Genesis 1 through 11. Um, we're making a turn here as there, there's booklets um, provided for you, new ones. Use these for note-taking. They track along with the sermons. Use them in your quiet times. Use them in your community groups. But it's not an understatement to say, I think, that the first 11 chapters of Genesis have all been building to this passage. That the first 11 chapters sort of hinge or building to or are even preliminary in preparation for Genesis 1 through 3. But not only that, I think that everything that happens in the book of Genesis after this, in fact, even that happens in the Bible is sort of a fulfillment or an unfolding of what we're reading about here. And let let me kind of explain that a little bit. See, up to this point, faith has had to fight for its survival. We've seen this, haven't we, since the days of the fall of Adam and Eve, where Abel was to be the line of promise, but Abel was killed by Cain, and so God had to raise up a remnant, uh, the line of Seth. But then we saw that as the line of Seth and the line of Cain both grew, there was increasing wickedness on the earth. And there was was none righteous, very few, only a remnant. And finally God selected Noah to go into the ark. But as we saw um, a couple weeks ago, even wiping the face of the earth from sin and, and giving life to these eight people didn't fix man's problem, right? Noah got off the boat Sinning, And if you weren't here for that Jerry Springer episode, you can go check that out online. Let me just leave it at that. But here we've seen it again over and over and over again. It's like there is this desperate search for anyone who has faith. Think about a, a funnel for a second. And at the top of the funnel, the widest part, you have this mass of humanity. And as you narrow the funnel and get down to the, to the single tip of the point, it's almost as if God is searching for faith. Faith and the worship of God is having to fight for survival until we get to this passage. Because it's in this passage where God sort of flips the funnel upside down. It becomes a pyramid. Then all of a sudden God says, I'm going to take this one piece of faith. I'm going to take this remnant And I'm going to build it into something amazing. And I was watching a movie recently about one of those viruses that threatened to destroy mankind. And it's kind of like, what other virus is there, right? So, and the whole story, they're trying to find a a cure before the whole world is turned into zombies or they're dead or what have you. And, And part of the story is they have to trace back the spread of the disease to find its root, find its cause, find the the sort of ground zero for this patient. Patient zero, they called this person, otherwise known as Gwyneth Paltrow. Anyway, (laughs) Abram, in a sense, is the spiritual ground zero. He's the one at the very tip of the pyramid. And no longer, no longer is faith going to have to fight for survival in the same way? Faith has always had to fight for its survival. The church and the gospel always have. But now there is the inauguration of a new plan. Look at verses 1 through 3. God proceeds to issue a series of promises to Abram. And he tells him things like this, I'm going to bless you. 
not just giving you a bunch of stuff, but I'm actually going to bless you so that you can bless others. See, this land, Abram, I'm going to give you this land. Not only am I going to give you this land, I'm going to build a great nation through your lines. But not only a great nation, I'm going to use your line to bless the whole world, to bless all the nations. And in fact, we can say that what we're doing here this morning and what the Pulsifers are, or the Baileys are doing on the mission field is all an outworking and outflowing of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. You see, God chooses Abraham to inaugurate the covenant of grace, to bring forth through him the salvation of the world. Everything that's happened up to this point is just preparing for this moment. Everything that happens from this moment, even up to the present time, we can point back to this. You might have sung the song and done the little Abraham dance in VBS when you were little, right? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, you know, right arm, left arm. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you have not lived, all right, until you do that. How do we call Father Abraham, Father Abraham, most of us are not even related genetically to him. In that way. Because Paul says it's not those who are physically descended from Abram that are my people. It's those who've had their hearts changed. And here we get, we, we get the very beginnings of this amazing unfolding plan of God and redemption. It's going to be a template for everything we talk about from here on in the book of Genesis. So, but today, today, we're going to confine ourselves to two things. Two things we learn about Abram as it relates to, here we go, here are the two points, God's sovereign grace and man's saving faith. We're going to learn something about the nature of God's grace and the nature of the way that grace activates faith in our life and what that looks like. So let's jump in. Sovereign grace, 1128. Abram's hometown was apparently a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. We know that this is not a fictitious place for multiple reasons, but one of those reasons is that we have discovered vast archaeological remnants of this city, nation, and state. In fact, you can go see museums and shows of antiquity that will show the treasures, that will show the, the, the background, the backdrop, the sociological makeup of these people, which was Mesopotamia, modern-day Iran, Iraq, somewhere over there. But what's interesting when you see these displays is that you will note what a prominent place idol worship played. The primary deity that they would worship, these, these folks, and this was the, the case all across Mesopotamia in the ancient Near East, was the moon god Sin, S-I-N appropriately named. They would build massive worship towers and ziggurats, and there were sacrificial sites that we've uncovered. Historically, we know this is true, but we also know it from the text if you just look a little closer. Trust me on this. Someone more qualified than than I has parsed this out. But if you look at the Hebrew underlying the names of these two daughters, Sarai and Milcah, They're both likely named after the progeny of this moon god that was being worshipped. Imagine, my name is Idol, my name is Idolette. Okay, whatever, that's that's what's happening here. In fact, the word Terah, Abram's father, the root means moon. Moon worship was the centerpiece of their lives. These were rank 
pagans, idolaters. Joshua 24, 14 confirms this for us when he says this. This is hundreds of years later. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. Joshua says, put away the gods your fathers worshipped beyond the river, the Euphrates. See, this was, they recognized that they came from a people who wanted nothing to do with God. They did not know God. John Calvin puts Abraham's condition up to this point like this. He says, Abram was plunged into the filth of idolatry. They just said it better in the 16th century, didn't they? They just said, they knew how to say that. In other words, there's no indication whatsoever that Abram was seeking after God. So naturally, as Americans who are all tied into fairness and justice and rightness and all those sorts of things, we ask, then why did God choose him? You know, a lot of times we think about relating to God as humans as sort of like those senior superlatives they gave out our, in high school. Remember, like the, the, you know, the, most, the prettiest or the most likely to succeed or the most likely to end up in prison or, you know, whatever. All those things that we voted on. My, my father-in-law, who is now with the Lord, of course, won friendliest and most courteous in his senior class. And then 25 years later, my wife Susan received the exact same superlatives, right? And we have a misconception that that's somehow, that's how God works. That God is just sort of kind of going around and he's looking for some goodness. He's looking for who's doing good. He's looking where there's a, there's a little remnant, a righteous, a piece of righteousness that he can work with. Just give, just give God something to work with. This is how we think God works. But see, this is not how it worked for Abram. You know, probably Job was a contemporary of Abram or, or, or sometime around there. We're going to meet a man named Melchizedek later in Genesis 14 who was a God worshiper. See, there were, there were other little sparks, remnants of faith that God could have worked with. Yet God appears to Abram. Now, what is Moses' point in all this? Why, why is Moses, why? I mean, because if you're an Israelite, you're reading this, you know immediately. It's kind of like, ooh, I come from the bad side of the family, right? You know, everybody in here has a good side and a bad side. Or maybe it's all bad side. I don't know what it is for you. But, but it's like the Israelites are reading this. And they're going, ooh. And they would have been asking the same questions. When, God, why did, what did Abraham do to deserve all this? And here's the answer that's just so hard for us to absorb. Nothing. That's the whole point. You see, Moses is giving us a front row seat to highlight in bold letters God's sovereign choice in salvation. His unconditional election. His capacity and desire to save people, listen, who could not save themselves. This is not a peripheral theme of Scripture, by the way. Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
See, Abraham and Pham were not just idol worshipers, but we see there in chapter 11 in verse 30 where it says, Sarai was barren, she had no child, which immediately they're going to be thinking about, wait a minute, you just promised Abram to bless all the nations of the world through him, but yet his wife can't have a baby. What is, what is again, what is God, what is Moses pressing upon the people of Israel? What is he impressing upon us? That this, folks, is a picture of salvation. Salvation is a supernatural thing. Salvation only happens at the initiative of God's sovereign grace. You may say, well, well Pastor Paul, what, what should that do for us? Is that just some sort of esoteric theoretical knowledge? No, no, no. When you know that, when you know that you've brought nothing to the table, when you know that it's been God's sovereign grace that's awakened your heart and drawn you to himself, boy, it puts a whole different priority and emphasis on worship, doesn't it? It puts a whole different spin on how we treat other people. All of a sudden, we have a big dose and helping of humble pie. We realize we're just not that big a deal. We really just can't change our children's lives. We really can't just control what happens ultimately to our bodies. See, it, it helps us to measure ourselves accordingly in a right way in relationship to God, in relationship to one another. Guys, doesn't it evoke, evoke you to compassion? To realize, but by the grace of God, that would be me. But by, by the grace of God, it is me. It is me. He's awakened my heart. He's drawn me to himself. See, living with, as Paul Tripp would say, an awe of God, A-W-E, completely, radically transforms the way we will look at everything. No longer will you and I be the center of our universe no longer will we measure everything that happens in accordance to how it affects and impacts us. When we come to understand that God is the sovereign here, Abram is doing his thing in the middle of his pagan worship, doing his pagan idolatry, oblivious to the world that God has made, God shows up and speaks to Abraham. Now, as we look at the way Abram responds, as we look at the nature of his faith, let me just encourage you to suspend your philosopher this morning. Because a lot of you are going to say, but, 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 but all that's just truth, and, and Abraham's just a robot, and he didn't have a choice. No. Stop it. Stop it. Abram was spoken to by God. He was given a call, and the way that he responds to the call of God tells us some very important things about saving faith. So let's look there. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. The word of God came to Abram, and he tells him, well, this is interesting, the first word, it's a command, it's an imperative, it's not a request. It's a statement. He says, go. Now, the sense of that word literally means to determinedly dissociate yourself, to leave, to go by yourself. Now, understand where Abram is, that we, you know, in the 21st century, we don't understand that, right? 
In the 21st century, it's like, well, we can just go, after we graduate, we can go to Europe for three years to find ourselves, right? So let's have an adventure. Let's travel. This is so fun. I have no home, no place. No, 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 no. See, Abram is in the, you know, he's 75, but we know that he lives to be 150. So he's probably equivalently 40, 45. His wife equivalently is 35 or so. He is, he is in the prime of his life. He has a bunch of stuff. He's accomplished a lot. He's a wealthy man. He has a home. He has a family. He has a tribe. He, he's, he's ready to go to the house. Do you know what I mean? He's that guy that retires early that you hate. Right? He's that guy. He's, he's, he's settled in. He's living in the heart of the Fernal Crescent. He's, he has tranquility. These, his home is his, is his refuge, is his little slice of paradise. And into that, God's call on him intersects, transcends all of those things. His country, his kindred, and his house. In other words, all the things that he would think are important to him. I remember when we were in Jackson, Mississippi, and I was finishing up four years of seminary, and Susan had been working, supporting me, sending me through school. And and at the end of those four years, I remember telling her what every wife just loves to hear her husband say after four years of that, which was, honey, I'm sorry, but I still don't know what I want to do, okay? Um, Maybe I should just do some more school since we don't have kids. And so we, we signed up for that. We came here in 1996 thinking that one day we were going to, quote-unquote, return home. But obviously the claim of God, the call of God, had other priorities. Guys, but let me just tell you, that, that's 21st century stuff. I mean, that's like, we can, like, get on FaceTime tonight. We can, I mean, we can drive a day and connect with our family. No, no. This is 100 times as bad for Abram. See, he didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what to do when he got there. He wasn't exactly sure why he was going. I mean, he knew something about the nations and a promise, but there's very little detail given here. He is, in a word, having to exchange the known for the unknown. John Calvin says it this way. We're going to quote Calvin a few times here. Here's what Calvin says his, his, this call is. He says, I command thee to go forth with closed eyes. And so having renounced thy country, thou shalt have given thyself wholly to me. Now, what do we call that? What does the Bible call that? See, the world would say, that's foolishness. That is folly. That's building a house of cards, a house of sands. This is why the biblical economy is so different. The Bible calls this faith. Biblical faith, saving faith. When we commit ourselves entirely to the Lord... Do you know what the closest sort of parallel we find in the scriptures to this kind of call? We see it again in the Gospels, don't we? When Jesus said, you'll deny yourself and pick up your cross and take it if you want to follow me. See, when we commit ourselves entirely to the Lord, when we say, I am following the Lord no matter what. Now understand, that does not mean you and I don't sin precipitously or do foolish things or wonder or stray that's not that's not what faith having faith doesn't insulate you from those things having faith just simply means i always have a north star 
No matter what I do, where I fail, what grievous sin I fall into, when I lay my head down on my pillow tonight, I know there is only one place for me to go, and that's to Jesus. There, I have no life anywhere else. Even if I'm living far from Jesus, I know in the depths of my heart I belong to him. He's made a claim on me. I know that all roads ultimately are going to have to lead back to him. That's faith. Faith is not contingent. Well, if God does this, then I'll do that. God, if you come 20%, I'll go 80. Or if you go 80, I'll go 20. Or if you work this out in my marriage, or if you do this particular thing, then, then, then I'll have faith. That's not faith. Calvin, again, knows exactly how to put this. He says, faith is obedience, and I love this, to the naked word of God. The bare word of God. What does he mean by that? Sometimes, sometimes, all we have to go on is the word of God. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes God gives us incredible assurance. He brings to mind his promises. He he gives us grace. He gives us blessing. He shows us the path forward. We have an, an inkling of what's happening. But sometimes, let's be honest, that's not how faith works. Sometimes God simply says, and this is so hard, trust and obey. And this is what Abraham did, or Abram at the time. Hebrews 11.8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, listen, not knowing where he was going. Just a quick question Where do you need this sort of measure of God's grace for faith today? Where where is an area where seemingly all you have to hold on to is the bare word of God? For some of you, that might mean I've got to get out of that relationship. Or I'm in a troubled marriage, I've got to get back into that marriage. Or I'm going to have to press forward in perseverance, God, trusting you're going to work in my child or you're going to work in this place or in my finances or or what have you. Sometimes all we have to go on, all we have to go on is the bare word of God that we have to obey and just entrust it all to the Lord, not knowing, not knowing what comes out the other end. Interesting with Abram, he was promised a nation, and what did he get? He got a burial plot. He got a piece of land with a cave where he buried his wife. That's all he got because God was enough for him. He persevered. Where do you need God's supernatural, miraculous grace to give you faith? Pray for that. I'll pray for you. Our elders will pray for you. Two application points and we're done. Two application points. These are two what I would call outworkings of faith. And when I say outworkings of faith, they're not to be confused with faith itself, but you can't separate them from faith if that makes sense. They're they're, they're sort of a natural consequence. They follow logically. And if they don't follow logically, there's something something wrong back at the root. So two, two application points. One is this idea of having a public faith. Now look in verse 6 for a second. It says that 
Abram builds an altar at Shechem, verse 6. Now, later on, Shechem is going to become very famous because it's where God's people gather with Joshua before they go to the promised land. It's also the place where the people um, renew their covenant before God in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a, it's a very famous, it's a, it's a highly symbolic place. But you know what? When Abraham went there, none of that was happening. The only thing that was happening, we have a clue about this in verse 6, where it seems to indicate this place, Shechem, was some sort of pagan center of idolatrous worship. The tree at Moreb was probably a, a euphemism for this was the place where the ancient people in the tribes would come and worship their various gods, moon gods, what have you. And isn't it interesting that Abraham decides to build an altar where? Right in the middle of it. It's almost as if he is putting his flag down, literally, in the middle of enemy territory. It's like when you travel to go to an away football game and you wear your school's colors and fly your flag into enemy territory praying you don't get killed, praying you don't get beaten up, right? You're, you're sort of staking your claim. That's what Abram is doing. What's interesting is that this is what Abram did wherever he went. It says there's a series of altars, actually, that he builds in this passage. Calvin again says he perfumed that place with the odor of faith. What is this telling us? Guys, faith is private, but it's so much more. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. There is no such thing as an exclusively private faith. Faith always has an outward expression. Organically, that can look a lot of different ways. But ultimately what we have to say is if our faith is not in some way, in some way, did you hear that? A lot of latitude. In some way, pressing itself up against the darkness. If our faith in some way is not having some sort of outward expression, testimony, witness, then we have to ask, what's happening here? Have we understood the very nature of grace? But, but, but formally, let me say this, this is why baptism in the church for 2,000 years has been such a big deal. We can say all we want that baptism doesn't save us, and of course it doesn't, just like your ring doesn't make you married. But boy, you better not take that off, right? Because it communicates something symbolically, something incredibly powerful. Guys, we have a baptism, public baptism coming up in a number of weeks in November, November 18th. And I just cannot wait for you to see what God has in store. We have two 80-year-olds getting baptized for the first time. We have two, we, we, have, we have kids, we have young adults, teenagers, all of it. We're going to join in, we're going to celebrate if you've never been baptized, and we don't, see, we don't make a big deal about this in the wrong sort of way, but we want to make a big deal about it in the right way. That if you are a professing Christian, faith, saving faith, it always, always must have a public dimension. It did for Abram. It should for us. Fill out your info card. We'll get in touch with you. A second application, and this relates to Mission. Isn't it interesting? It says in this text that Abraham pitched his tents, but he built an altar. Those are two different words. To pitch a tent was a very temporary thing. 
That's what the Israelites did with a tabernacle. They would put it up and take it down. But an altar, no, 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 no. That was something entirely different. An altar was meant to be permanent. It was made with stones. It was, it was surrounded by parameters. It was set apart for people to know it, to see it. See, what Abraham, what Abraham is doing here, he's communicating something very powerful. That his home, his life, is just very temporary. But it's the worship of God. It's the eternality of our worship with him that is enduring and it's permanent and it goes on and on. This is what Hebrews 11, 9, 10 says. It says, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Listen, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why tents? For... He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It seemed that even at that time, Abram understood the promise of this land is not ultimately about the land. The promise of this land is about an eternal land, an eternal destination that may not be fulfilled in your life. And folks, it may not be fulfilled in yours. It may not be fulfilled in mine. But in the meantime, God calls us to exercise faith by what? Being on mission. Now, where, you may say, Pastor Paul, where do you see that? Look at verse 8. It says that Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It seems that there was a point in place and time where Abram had begun to gather the people of God. You may say, well, what do you mean gather the people of God? It was just him and like some family members. Go back to verse 5 for a second. This just gives us a tantalizing clue as to the way Abram envisioned his life of faith. Verse 5, it says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. Uh, I got the wrong, sorry. Let me, the pages stuck together with whatever I ate between the services. Okay, verse 5, okay. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. Now listen, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. Now some would say, well, those are servants, those are slaves. Different word. Different word. This is, this is, this is like saying Abram and his folk. Abram and his people. Well, where did these people come from? Well, it's obvious, Right? Abram had been calling upon the name of the Lord. The the, the sense is gathering for worship, proclaiming the gospel, preaching, pointing to Yahweh, calling people to faith. Abram was living out the gospel call right in the middle of his neighbors from the very first. He was on mission. See, part of our faith expression, our expression of faith, is that we are called to be on mission, church. So often, we, there's so much we can learn. There's a whole other sermon in here that won't be done today of just this whole dynamic of, of Abram as salt and light as the Christian is to be salt and light. On one hand, Abram never says, bad culture, bad world. I'm pulling away. I'm going to the mountains. I'm, no, no. He just pitched his tent right in the middle of it. But on the other hand, there was something unique There was something distinctive. There was something set apart by him. Everyone in there had not a shadow of a doubt who 
Abram belong to? Well, what about you? We are called to be on mission for Oaks. And the best witnesses to that mission, to the glory of God, are those who see the sovereign grace of God in their lives. The great buildings of the Christian faith, the great hymns of the Christian faith, the great writings of the Christian faith all came when people saw the splendor of the sovereign care and grace of God over their lives. Abram knew it. He walked in it. Do you know it?